Hello and welcome to the Investing with IBD podcast sponsored by Direction. It is Justin Nielsen here along with the special weekly guest that we always have every week, Arusha Pires, O'Neill Global Advisors Portfolio Manager. How are you doing, Arusha? I'm doing well, Justin. Excellent, excellent. So it is September 14th, 2022, and we are very glad to welcome back to the show Simon Erickson. He is the founder and CEO of Seven Investing. How are you doing, Simon? Great, Justin. Glad to be here. Glad football season again. A lot of good things going on out there right now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We should have had you on the show last last week. We were talking a little bit of football with Jared Tendler. Um, so yeah, it's uh, and I know you're a big Saints fan. You you have uh, your paraphernalia that you were showing us earlier. So. Uh, <laughs> I had to get that into the program. These are some yes. nice things. Yeah, maybe, maybe bring it up a little bit closer to the camera right so we can there, see right? the logo. Yeah, yeah that's oh, that's a that's an awfully good looking shoe there. So, um, so yeah, big shoes to fill, Simon. Uh, we're we're can't wait to hear about your thoughts on this market. We had, of course, a, a big CPI report yesterday, and uh, you know, a big mar re market reaction to it. But we're also kind of looking ahead to what areas may be setting up, what areas are looking interesting. So we're going to do a deep dive with Simon on that. And of course, Simon's also going to share some of the stocks that are on his radar. So let's get right to it and throw up the NASDAQ. Uh, that 5% drop on the NASDAQ composite after the CPI report came in a little bit hotter than expected. That was the worst drop that we've seen since June 11th of 2020. Um, what do you think, Simon? Is this time to go back in the bunker with canned goods and not come out for six weeks and maybe we get winter or that's Groundhog Day? What, what What's your take on this whole thing? <laughs> Beef jerky and ammunition and run for the hills of Montana, Justin. That's Yeah, I'm okay. But there we go. It, yeah. and has, has it been more than six minutes since we mentioned Jerome Powell? I feel like we haven't talked about uh, the Fed <laughs> right. in at least six minutes now. Probably the all-time record for the last six months. Yeah, yeah, seriously. I mean, it's one of those things when you get a bunch of people that are technicians talking about macroeconomics, it's like, okay, what is going on? So uh, what's, what's, what's your take with everything? Do you even do you even care that much about the macroeconomic picture or is it more just the market's reaction to everything for you? Yeah, it's certainly the macro matters, right? You know, and I think that I'm in the majority here when I say that with interest rates going up, discount rates are increasing, future cash flows that are discounted back to the present are worth less. So all right. things considered, stock prices are worth less when you have a restrictive environment from the Fed. I think that the bigger story that's kind of making all the headlines right now about inflation is, you know, which industries are going to be most exposed to this? If you're shipping things around the world and you're very exposed to gasoline prices, yes, this will certainly impact you. If you are selling directly to consumers, consumer discretionary, even the advertising industry, which is tangential to that, yes, this will certainly impact you. If you're selling enterprise software and you've got 98% retention rates with really, really big customers who have deep pockets, maybe this is not as concerning for you. But it's certainly a stock picker's market in my mind right now. It's not just across the board, free money for everybody. We can throw darts and get a great return over the next 10 years. Right. Now, um, well, now, to your point about the, the software companies, I mean, a lot of these software companies got hit so hard because all of a sudden it was like, oh, PEs matter uh, now. And, you know, a lot of these had those heavy, you know, higher valuations. So while they might be in a little bit of a better uh, stance, you know, in terms of shipping and everything like that, hey, it's a lot easier if you're just downloading software. Um, you know, some of them still have fairly high valuations, even though they're off their highs by 50% or more. So do you think that that's, uh, you know, what is that? 
who wins in that argument? Is it the, the high inflationary environment with the discounted uh, future cash flows? Or is it the competitive advantage of not having these rising costs with shipping and other things? Yeah, there's generally three ways you can make money in the stock market. You know, growth in fundamentals, uh, growth in valuation multiples, or dividends, right? Mm -hmm. Ignoring the third of those, just focusing on the first two for a moment here, uh, we can look for companies that just are growing earnings and growing sales 100% every single year, and the market still values them comparably with how it has traditionally for the last couple of years. That's one way you can make money. The other is that you have a very cheery consensus where the market says, hey, you know, I used to be paying 10 times sales. I'm going to pay 20 times sales now, and maybe I'll pay 30 or 40 times sales. And I think with all the IPOs that we saw pre-COVID, and then yeah. also a lot of the, the optimism that we had post-COVID, especially in the tech industry right there, we got some really frothy valuations that are kind of, I think, coming back down to earth right now. And so I think that, you know, well, maybe the, there was a little bit of, of, you know, froth of optimism in there in the last year or two. I don't think it spells doom for the tech industry long term. It's just that, you know, the market's going to do what it's going to do on any given year. If you're thinking three, five years out, things like this tend to normalize. Mm -hmm. Now, does this, does this change your strategy? Because you're, you're, you're definitely looking, we're all looking for growth, right? And we're all going to get into these growth stocks and we're going to hold them at different time for time, different time frames too. But does this uh, new environment, does that change your kind of approach for looking for innovative, great growth companies that a lot of times are going to be more expensive? They're not going to have those cash flows initially. They're not going to be earning for a little while. The uh, innovative, great growth companies is the perfect description of what I like to look for, Arusha. You know, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm a long-term growth style investor. And what that really means is I'm trying to find things that are mispriced right now. Mm -hmm. uh, Starbucks is very easy to model. You can kind of figure out how many people are going to Starbucks every quarter and how much they're going to increase prices for. Same thing for a lot of retailers out there. Uh, for a, an artificial intelligence-based company or a company that's, that's playing around with blockchain or looking at new markets that didn't exist before, a lot of times the market has no idea how to value those companies. There's some that are going to say, hey, I want to be the early you know, adopter. I want to get on this early. And others are saying, wait, I'm not in on this till you show me the money. And I try to find the happy medium between those two, where we find things that look promising, they look innovative, but they're actually showing progress too. Mm -hmm. That's the sweet spot for me as an investor. That's the kind of companies that I like to look for. Well, now certainly in 2021, uh, starting in 2021, and then for the first half of 2022 in a big way, uh, it was a lot of the cyclical stocks, the materials, the oil, the gas. And I mean, you, you look around now and, Oil and gas, I mean, that's not dead. That, that's some of the best looking charts out there right now. Um, that's not exactly what we normally think of as this innovative and growth type of industry. But in a lot of ways, that's, what's, that's what the market is favoring right now. So do you, do you do any shifting yourself or do you just say, hey, I'm going to wait until my stuff gets uh, back in favor and, and I'm just not going to play these that are kind of outside of my norm? tend to look at the industry as a whole, Justin. So, so like you just mentioned oil and gas, I kind of would consider that as energy. Uh, and we can actually find pockets of energy. We're going to talk about a few of them on the program here today, that even as oil and gas, you know, looks really good right now, the Exxons and the, and the Chevrons of the world, there's also some pockets that haven't gotten a whole lot of attention in the past that are really starting to get some really uh, good interest, I think, from investors as well. Um, software. Software is always innovative. It's one of the fastest changing uh, you know, sectors of the market, cybersecurity, here to stay, you know, companies like this that are deriving revenue from um, 
the acquisition cost versus the lifetime value of, of a customer and things that are digital, that's a lot different than assets that are in the ground when you're putting steel into the dirt. It kind of is a different kind of ball game that you're playing. As investors, though, we should always think about cash flows and how that actually impacts us as the investors in these companies. Mm-hmm. And so, Justin, maybe we, we probably should go back and talk a little bit about just the overall market. Uh, I was thinking the same the thing. IP perspective, just to maybe end this segment. Right. Uh, because we are in a, obviously, we're still in, in this more volatile, mm-hmm. more bear market correction, call it whatever you want. It is a much trickier market than we've seen for, for quite a while. And we, we had to sell off uh, uh, yesterday with, with the, the CPI numbers. Today was just a very, very weak bounce. And the overall market outlook is under pressure, right? So uh, really, the, nothing has changed that much for much of 2021. <laughs> or, I mean, 2022, no, uh, not a lot has changed. Still very tricky. Still be cautious. Don't push it at this time, at least from the IBD perspective. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that we were talking about with Simon and kind of our prep call was, uh, you know, we we were all kind of giving our projections, you know, okay, what what do you think is going to happen here? And I've been kind of thinking for a while, hey, we could just go back and forth here for a while. And we are still doing that. Um, As of right now, the September 6th low has held. Uh, you can see that, you know, from just, you know, just last week. And that's kind of lined right up with the July 26th low uh, that we had where it, you know, the NASDAQ just briefly came in to its 50-day moving average line before really taking off in July and August. But of course, you know, there was that 200-day moving average line. And as soon as that kind of reared its ugly head, the NASDAQ didn't quite get there. The S&P 500 you know, almost touched it and, you know, turned away. And so here we go again. Not that we're necessarily going to make new lows, but, you know, one of the reasons why we didn't go to confirmed uptrend, even though there was a really strong four-day rally, was, I mean, there was no volume behind it. There was no follow-through. There was no conviction. Uh, And especially if you compare it to just the week before where there was a lot more downside volume, um, you know, you, you kind of want to see that that reversed. Um, uh, Simon, uh, on your side, are, are there any are there any particular levels that you look at on the chart that like, hey, if, if I see the indexes do this, I'm going to feel a little bit better? Um, or it, are you just really looking at more of the, the sectors and the industry groups and kind of making your gauges based on that? A little of both. I actually really have a great amount of respect for the technical analysis that you guys have done. I, I love this show. I actually love learning from Arusha uh, for several years about it. Now, we, we talked about seven predictive indicators this morning earlier. Uh, everything from the, you know, the S&P 500's P.E. ratio to the cyclically adjusted P.E. ratio to the Buffett indicator to the 10 to year um, yield spreads, you know, just things like this. I think that they all boil down to, though, you know, what is the confidence that the market has in American businesses? Uh, whether it's actions from big money that's you know being put to work or being pulled out of stocks by institutional investors, or if it's broader indicators that indicate you know what is the valuation of the stock market as compared to the success or lack of success of the American business. At the end of the day, it's you know w- w- people are all looking for a little bit of confidence, a little bit of trust. Uh, Jerome Powell, see five and a half minutes there, Justin. <laughs> like there we go. Like, when we talk about these things, it's like you know, when are when are we going to get that confidence back? I don't think anyone really, really has the great answer to that, but I, I don't, I don't think it's, it's permanent that you know things are going to stay under pressure like this. Uh, 
Yeah. Um, certainly, well, something else we talk about is short interest. You know, it, which mm-hmm. is very, oh yeah, very that's high a good These companies are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe maybe talk a little bit more about that because you were bringing up some interesting things on the short interest. Um, is it getting overdone on that side? Is has the bearishness gotten gotten too much? In, in pockets, I think it has. You know, it wasn't just more than a couple of weeks ago that we saw Invite go up 270% in a single day. You know, the stock almost quadrupled in value just because of a short squeeze. Uh, there's some technical factors that go behind that. You know, people tend to go running for the exits if they're betting against a stock that has a catalyst attached to it. But the short interest says, you know, of all the freely traded shares that are available out there for the public, what percentage of them are people that are betting against the stock, that want the stock to go down? And for a lot of companies, you know, it's pretty healthy to see a 7, 10% of the free float being sold short. We're starting to see some of these companies, especially in the tech industry right now, popular companies with great leadership teams, 30, 40% or higher short interest. Uh, for me, catalysts, a buyback, a good earnings report, you know, a right. shakeup of the board of directors, right. things like this can become very, very bullish in short periods of time, even for great companies. And easily cascades, you know, the little bit of buying here starts even more buying and then the panic kind of starts. And, you know, before before too long, you've got 200 percent gains in a day. (laughs) Yeah, well, well, a lot of times, I mean, because it's interesting, though, a lot of times because people will ask uh, how, how we look at short interest. Usually, I don't pay too much attention, especially when the the stock is in a downtrend. But when a stock is setting up for one of the patterns that we look for. And there's a lot of short interest in it, and they're going into earnings. You know, a lot of times I'll say a prayer for those who are shorting the stock, <laughs> because if that earnings report is good, they are going to get run over. Uh, and a lot, and it, it's amazing, especially a lot of the stocks that we look at, all of us look at, right? These innovative stocks that people just naturally will bet against because they don't see necessarily the bigger vision when everything lines up with the market and all this stuff. But um, when that all lines up, they're betting against it. They'll get run over. And that the the shorts covering is uh, a big part of that catalyst to really get that stock going into new highs and really start trending on its way up to a, a pretty good run. Mm-hmm. So basic synopsis, uh, you know, uptrend still under pressure, still a lot of back and forth action. Um, you know, this is one of the one of the things that at least for for our shop, we tend to not predict too much of saying, hey, we think that the index is going to be at this level in six months or do this. Uh, we just basically say, OK, what is it doing right now? And, you know, right now it's a lot of back and forth action and hard to make some hard to make any progress, really, unless you're in the right industries. And when we come back, we're going to talk about one of the industries that is on Simon's radar in a big way and why he thinks it's worth doing a deeper dive. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. The Direction Hydrogen ETF offers exposure to the top 30 pure play hydrogen economy companies by largest market capitalization, leading the way towards net zero emissions by providing more accessible, efficient, sustainable solutions across five hydrogen-related sub-themes. With clean hydrogen-based energy expected to grow five times in the next 30 years, companies building hydrogen-related businesses to generate power, heating, transportation, and more will likely thrive. Okay, welcome back to the Investing with IBD podcast sponsored by Direction. It's Justin Nielsen here along with my weekly guest, 
Arusha Pierce from O'Neill Global Advisors. And our special guest this week is Simon Erickson, returning back to the show. He's the founder and CEO of Seven Investing. Uh, Simon, let's talk a little bit more about what industry you think could be uh, the next big thing. I believe what we referred to it as powering up the electric vehicle industry, Justin. At least someone who's a lot more clever than I did came up with that slogan for it. <laughs> right. but, you know, this is one of those that's, that's getting a lot of attention in the market, right? We talk about EVs a lot of time. We talk about Tesla a lot of time. Feels like the rest of this industry is catching up with Elon. And maybe it's time to start talking about the picks and shovel plays and the companies that are at the forefront of that as investment opportunities. So let's Simon. Let's talk. Let's start uh, talking from kind of the larger perspective, kind of the what's going on from the higher level, and then we'll we'll get into the specific stocks a little later. So so yeah. So what what's going on with with the the EV? What are kind of some of the areas that are are growing really fast right now? Well, I have seventy three technical diagrams that I'm going to share All now right. with everybody. Arusha. So <laughs> as long as you guys are okay for the next two and a half hours, I'll just start up my PowerPoint, no problem. Uh, people are either going to love or hate this this podcast. I tell you. Uh, it, it, the the, the, the just kidding, of course. The, the bottom line is though that this is uh, there's some fundamental science that's different. You know, we're not just talking about incremental improvements to gas powered cars anymore. Electric vehicles that are powered by batteries are completely different than them. They require completely different supply chains. And this thing that we've become comfortable with knowing as the car that we've optimized for the past century is suddenly changing. Uh, the people that are fans of electric vehicles are, first of all, fans of batteries. They are greener. You know, there was kind of a lot of attention up front about the decarbonization, you know, all, all the green efforts, the ESG, things like this uh, that weren't associated with fossil fuels. But there are also others that are really a fan of just electric vehicles being more efficient. Two, uh, the efficiency of the internal combustion engine and how that delivers power to the rest of the car is inferior to electric vehicles. And so I think those are kind of the two topics that maybe we can chat about as investors, uh, because there's companies that are that are kind of going all in pure plays on both the battery side of this and then also the how is the power delivered to the car, which to me are, are pretty interesting and pretty innovative. Now, we, we should mention to folks, you know, it, Simon is not just a pretty face. You actually did get a degree in chemical engineering. So you kind of know a little bit about the, the engineering side and you know some of the chemicals that are causing these uh, reactions to produce this energy and everything. So uh, thereby your 72 diagrams that you'll be showing us uh, very shortly, I'm sure. Uh, so you know maybe maybe kind of break it down for us a little bit. Um, you know, of course, everyone is talking about lithium. you know it's you, you, you see you see that everywhere. and is that, is that the be all end all or are there competing things out there? And, and even with lithium, you've got kind of different different factors of lithium. You've got the lithium carbide or, you know, what 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 do you see as being kind of the the winner right now? And are there some contenders waiting in the wings? It's interesting, Justin, because if we go back just a couple of years. It was not that long ago that Elon Musk couldn't get anyone to show up for his booth. You know, when, when Tesla was a new company and he was saying, hey, we're going to have this Tesla Roadster, this $100,000 electric vehicle that's going to be awesome. A lot of people were saying eh, that's really not going to work. In fact, Elon himself was saying that Tesla had a less than 10 percent chance of being successful. And now it's, you know, a more than a trillion dollar company, one of the most popular companies and investment opportunities out there. Uh, but what Elon really did was he scaled up lithium ion chemistry. Uh, he found a battery that was good enough 
for electric vehicles to go mainstream. When we say mainstream, the mass market demands certain things. If you want to have it, something that's going to replace the car that you already have in your garage, right? It's got to make sure that it's not going to run out of juice, right? When I'm driving to work, I can't be stranded on the side of the highway because I ran out of charge in my battery. And then if I do want to charge it up, you know, I, I don't want to spend two hours sitting at a charging station. I want this thing to be charged up in 15 minutes, preferably even less than that, probably. And then also battery packs are expensive. Electric vehicles are expensive. I don't want to have to replace this thing after 50,000 miles. I want it to last for three or 400,000 miles. And so uh, Elon did a lot of good things with, with lithium ion as, as the, the, the technology that's powering all of Tesla's battery packs right now. But the people that are really you know, into the science and into the technology have said, hey, lithium ion goes back to the Arab-Israeli war. I mean, this is a technology that's been around for 50 years, <clears throat> excuse me, and we're incrementally improving it a little bit more every year, right? Tesla's getting a little bit better. Panasonic's getting a little bit better. But guys, if we really, really wanted to flip the script on this, there's an even better technology called lithium metal, which is highly unstable, by the way. It tends to blow up. Bad things tend to happen. But if we could fix a well, lot That's not of encouraging. Things, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of the Ford Pinto you know? now. <laughs> Bad publicity when your car blows up. But, but there are now companies that are, that are actually saying, you know, I think that we've, we've figured out a lot of these limitations and problems with lithium metal. It's got a higher energy density. It's got a faster charge time. It's got longer um, durability for, for more and more cycles. And as these things that were R&D considerations 10 years ago start getting into commercialized aspirations today that companies can bring out to the market and actually start selling cars that might not have the same battery pack as Elon is making in the gigafactories, mm -hmm. we should pay attention to things like this. You know, at the end of the day, innovation tends to, tends to win. We're not driving Model Ts anymore. You know, there's not right. steam powered vehicles driving around on the, on the roads. Uh, but but it's an interesting one that's going to take some time. But I, I think it's fascinating and very interesting as an investor. How long is do people think that it will become much more uh, more commercial? Uh, I mean, like, how, how has it been kind of it, where has it been introduced right now? And then, yeah, what's kind of the, the timeline for this to potentially become a viable alternative to lithium ion? One of the companies we'll be chatting about in the third segment here has got partnerships with with about five of the 10 largest OEMs in terms of sales within the United States. Uh, what that means, Arusha, is that nobody wants to get caught behind their competitors in this. Mm -hmm. If there's a better battery where you can buy a Ford car and it's going to get you 600 miles before you have to recharge it, but your best electric vehicle can only go three or 400 miles, what are people going to vote on? They're going to put their money where their mouth is and, and go with their performance. And so when these things tend to happen, they tend to be science experiments at first. Mm -hmm. Then they hit a critical mass, and then you see this S-curve just like we saw with Tesla, with Tesla's S curve, uh, that they take on, take on, and very, they take off. Excuse me, in very short periods of time, uh, that can be ten bagger, maybe twenty bagger potential for investors to catch them at the early stages. Mm -hmm. Now, how much of this innovation? Um, I mean, look, capitalism—it's all about creative destruction, right? Um, but it, it make, makes me think of back in the day when you had the vhs and the betamax right and then you know you eventually had the the well the laser disc was in there at some point you know dvds <laughs> blu-ray all of this um you know sometimes there was there, there were growing pains right you know it was like who's going to be the winner first of all you know where do we where do we need to put our money because at first you don't know 
there's competing technologies and you don't know who the winner is going to be. Uh, Betamax, a lot of people argued, was the better technology, but it didn't win. Uh, so with with this different battery technologies, you know, number one, how do you kind of adjust to, oh, maybe this one is the more commercially viable? And then number two, does that create like changes in supply chains, production, all of those things to make that shift to say, okay, now now we're going this way because this is the better technology? Or do you stick with the old technology because that's what you kind of put your money into, the CapEx expenditures? You close your eyes and throw darts, Justin, right? You just, you just kind of <laughs> blindly say, okay, we're going to go with this one today. <laughs> yeah. It starts with scientists, right? It starts in the lab. You know, Somebody comes up with something that's interesting. They put it out there for venture capitalists to take a look at. All of a sudden, you've got some big name, Kleiner Perkins types of Sequoia venture capitalists that are putting some big money into things. Through later and later rounds, these companies go public. There's you know mass market uh, brand recognition of companies like this, and then you've got commercial milestones that happen one step at a time. Uh, it's not just jumping in the deep into the pool and doing a high dive, you know, cannonball, and then all of a sudden things happen. It, it's the result of, of decades of work. And we are starting to see, I mean, we were first talking about batteries, but, you know, lithium metal and even lithium ion, too, uh, have been lab experiments for long periods of time. We should not understate how much Elon Musk had to do with this because he didn't want to disrupt his own business. You know, if you're Ford and you've been optimizing your cars based on the internal combustion engine for a, for a century, you're not really eager to go out there and give up all your margin to try something new. But if you get pushed by a disruptor that's getting a lot of attention, just like Tesla has, all of them are, every OEM now is, is wanting to make sure they're not getting left behind. There's businesses and employees at stake on this. So, so, so including Tesla, they yeah. definitely have some people working on lithium metal just in case, you know, that, that becomes the technology. Yeah, and disruptive innovation always, always says, Arush, it's tough to beat the incumbent at their own game. Right. It's hard to come out there and have a lower priced, better performing microprocessor that's a CPU that's going to compete against Intel. It's hard to have a more efficient gas-powered engine that's being put into the cars is going to get better highway gas mileage. But if we're starting over, if we're using batteries and we're using drivetrains that are completely different than what we've got right now, if we're looking at traction inverters that are distributing that power to the rest of the vehicle more efficiently, all of a sudden it flips the script on a lot of the things that we've kind of held sacred for a long time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe let's get into that a little bit more because you did talk about, okay, uh, getting back to your original energy, and there's a lot of ways we can define energy. You know, are you getting it from fossil fuels? Are you getting it from electric? Are you getting it from lithium, chemicals, you know, what have you? Um, but there's that traction inverter. You know, can you talk a little bit about that, that efficiency with which the power ends up turning the wheels? Yeah, that's exactly as efficiency is the right word for this, right? You know, we're, we're looking for decades about putting liquid gasoline into our cars, input, and then the output of that is spinning the wheels, right? I step on the accelerator on the highway and all of a sudden I'm up to 60 miles an hour. How many seconds can you get me there, right? Uh, gas powered cars are not really that efficient. You know, we've kind of talked about the range of 40 to 50% efficiency in terms of the energy going in and inputs versus the output of turning the wheels of our car. Uh, but Elon and others said, you know, electric vehicles, if we're doing this where we're actually producing DC power out of a battery pack, uh, turning it into to alternating uh, 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 electric current that's used by the motor of, of an electric vehicle, 
uh, AC power, not, not AC, DC, the band, but DC to AC, you know, for, for these cars, uh, you know, we can get up to maybe 80 to 90% efficiency, double where we were at before. And we also said, you know, if there was a different material that we would use in the chips that's helping to distribute that power across the vehicle in a more efficient way, we could probably get up to 95 or even 97% efficiency. Wow. But it's going to take a different type of chemistry. It's going to take a different material that's going into the chips. That material is silicon carbide, which is being used in Tesla's traction inverters that are giving its vehicles 97% efficiency today. And so Tesla's been the early leader in this field. It's, again, a picks and shovel play, um, but others are catching up, and there are other companies that are doing this even more efficiently than what Tesla's doing right now. So, for, for, so Simon, for the, the lame, just, just for the, the layman, how, how does having that much more efficiency affect their lives? It's just going to cost less to do, get the same amount of work done? I mean, yeah, yeah. Tr translate that into like something that I can understand. At the end of the day, if I'm making a battery-powered car, I want it to be as light as possible. Okay. I want the smallest battery pack I can put on there because more weight means you got to slow down when you're driving 150 miles through an hour through California, right? Yeah. <laughs> no one ever did that in L.A., I don't think. What, 10 miles an hour on the highways? Uh, but at the end of the day, it turns into specifications, right? Lighter weight, better energy density, more efficient power distribution across the car. I mean, things that are, you know, just specs for R&D guys – translate into dollars and cents of something that could be a competitive advantage. Yeah. And so there's kind of, you know, these different types of companies. There's the companies that are providing the batteries that have higher energy density. density. There, are, there are companies that provide the power modules or the traction inverters that are components that go into a Tesla or another electric vehicle out there. I mean, when you're starting from scratch again, it's, it's, it's okay to be new because you're doing something fundamentally different than what everybody else is doing out there. Well, now, maybe we can just kind of wrap up this discussion with one other component. Uh, and, and I'd just love to hear your thoughts on this, Simon. Uh, you know, one of the things that's, I guess, difficult about replacing the internal combustion engine is that there's this whole infrastructure with gas stations, right? And they're, they're all over the place. They're readily available. Um, now you have to replace that with charging stations and, you know, how readily available are those? Um, you know, how, how frequently can you run across them? I mean, I know driving up the five sometimes I'm like, okay, it's 30 miles until the next one. And, you know, if that one's closed, then when is, when is the next one? Um, you know, that's 30 miles with some of these charging stations. It could be a lot longer that you have to go and you have to really kind of back into where am I going to stop? How long am I going to have to stop for to charge? And um, how efficient is is that going to be? Um, and and will you know is the charging station going to be there? Is it going to be available? And is it going to be working? You know, so you're giving me you range anxiety here. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that side. Is there, you know, is is there anything that you're calculating on that side and and looking towards? There's two sides to it, Justin, right? There's one side that's the political side of it, and then there's one part of it that's the commercial side of it. Uh, the political part, I, I really can't comment on. I, I don't know. I don't know where the money is going to go to. You know, we talk about, you know, infrastructure for supercharging stations. We talk about R&D grants, you know, pr proposed by the presidential administrations, things like this. There's a lot of, there's hundreds of billions of dollars that's committed now to R&D science, uh, fundamental research that can go into things like this. And a lot of that, that subsidizes uh, businesses to do really neat things when they can get, you know, some money from the government to reduce their own capital costs. 
Uh, but the perspective I've always taken as someone who worked at a tech ventures division of one of the, the, the large, uh, 10 largest companies in the United States was we always looked at without subsidies. If you didn't look at the political side of this at all, and you just looked at the technology and let that make your decisions go forward, which ones do you really want to bet on? And nine out of 10 don't go anywhere, right? You'll go out and you'll even put money into things that are not going to be the end winner. Uh, but you have to take bets and then you have to kind of consolidate across those bets. It's very hard to go from zero to 60 in terms of commercializing things without kind of taking incremental steps along the way. And I think that's where we stand with a lot of these, you know, that they are, again, progressing out of the lab, getting some scalability prototypes that are now getting into programs with really big customers out there. The next step is going to be, you know, are we looking at companies that maybe are billion dollars today, maybe $5 billion today? that are worth $50, $100 billion in the future, because that's what the auto industry can, su can support. There's a lot of cars that get sold every single year across this country. And I mean, you know, we should also mention on you know, this is one of the things we've been kind of talking about, especially here in California, you know, we've had this major heat wave and it was like, hey, don't charge your cars. And it's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> You're telling us that we have to switch to electric, but then you don't want us to charge them. There's uh, you're a chemical engineer. Help me. How does that work? Explain the physics to me. Uh, turn the AC off, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a trade-off, right? I mean, you've got California saying, yeah, no more gas-powered cars, you know, but then you've got brownouts throughout the throughout the state. It's the political side of it. It's, it's always challenging. It's uh, two cars driving alongside each other on the same highway, uh, which helps certain technologies catch on. Okay, well, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the innovative companies that are these picks and shovels plays that might be worth doing a little bit of a deeper research into. Maybe not for right now at this moment, but things that are looking good in the future. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. The Direction Hydrogen ETF offers exposure to the top 30 pure play hydrogen economy companies by largest market capitalization, leading the way towards net zero emissions by providing more accessible, efficient, sustainable solutions across five hydrogen related subthemes. With clean hydrogen based energy expected to grow five times in the next 30 years, companies building hydrogen related businesses to generate power, heating, transportation, and more will likely thrive. Welcome back to the Investing with IBD podcast, sponsored by Direction. It's Justin Nielsen here, along with my weekly guest, Arusha Pires from O'Neill Global Advisors. And our special guest this week is Simon Erickson, returning back to the show. Uh, he's the founder and CEO of Seven Investing. And, you know, we should just real quickly mention before we get into some of these stocks, um, you know, that people can follow some of your ideas here. Maybe you'll throw up those 72 technical charts uh, on your Twitter uh, account. Uh, that's at seven innovator. That's the number seven innovator. Any Anywhere else that uh, people should should reach out to you and kind of get information on what you're looking at. Uh, we, we do, Justin. You know, we, we will not put those 73 charts up on this page, but seveninvesting.com slash subscribe. If you do want to see our seven top stock market recommendations every month, I've got a fantastic team with me. We'd like to pick stocks out there. If you use promo code IBD, you get $100 off of the annual membership. So 25% discount for your listeners of your show. Very nice. Okay. Well, let's get into some of those uh, top 10 ideas right now, at least a few of the ones that are mulling around in your brain. Uh, and why don't we start with uh, QS, QuantumScape. Uh, now, of course, this one is gosh, almost 75% off its high. You mentioned how there were all these IPOs in 2020. And I mean, it got even 
it got even more frothy in 2021, especially with the special purpose acquisition companies, the SPACs, as they're known, uh, going really crazy. I mean, 2021, I think, was surpassing 2000 uh, to make a historic high in terms of the IPOs and SPACs. So what is it about this that's exciting you? Uh, and why is it that the market's not recognizing it yet? Oh, gosh, Justin, the most exciting part was probably back in November of 2020, right? When it actually does that back <laughs> IPO, $10 a share, and within one month, it's a 13-bagger. It's up to $131 a share. It's just that easy. <laughs> My goodness. I, I should be buying. If I had bought, I could have retired with an island in the Caribbean now. We could have been hanging out there. You could have had so many of those Saints shoes. It would have been like... Uh... Stockpiled, right? <laughs> Um, the the enthusiasm was from all the mumbling and grumbling about lithium-ion batteries. They're just saying, ah, electric vehicles aren't going to get out there. It takes too long to charge them. You know, the range anxiety that Arusha talked about. I mean, and then uh, right at the SPAC IPO that QuantumScape had, uh, Jagdeep Singh, the CEO, uh, basically says, hey, we can fully charge this, almost fully charge, 80% charge this within 15 minutes. We can fix the dendrite issue with lithium, uh, with the separators. That has been a problem that's uh, causing them to blow up and degrade over time. And uh, by the way, the energy density is superior to that of what Elon can have with Tesla. And so everyone got so excited about this right out of the gate. And then they kind of pulled that back and they said, well, you know, actually, these are still prototypes in the lab. We're not going to actually have anything commercialized until 2025, probably 2026. Uh, and so market kind of lost a lot of that enthusiasm. Shares are back now to exactly about where they did that IPO from two years ago. But the interesting thing is that the company is making some pretty solid progress. Uh, they have six partnerships in place with large OEMs uh, that are automotive OEMs that, again, are saying, hey, rather than us develop this our, your, ourselves, we'd like to hire you to do it. And let's build a program around this that we could eventually put into our own electric vehicles. The, uh, the other really interesting thing, Justin, is that J.B. Straubel is, the, uh, is on the board of QuantumScape. And if that name is familiar to anyone in the audience, he was the chief technology officer and a co-founder of Tesla, uh, who has now said, you know, years later, hey, I'm abandoning lithium ion because I'm going to go out and figure out this lithium metal uh, chemistry and how this can be even superior to what's out there. Elon, of course, says this is impossible. He says, you know, there's no way that you guys can scale this up from the lab to something that's that's global. But QuantumScape is certainly up for the challenge. Challenge accepted. And, and you know, so, uh, another thing you just have mentioned a number of times, uh, the, the acronym OEM. So just for people that don't know, uh, go ahead and fill us in on. Original equipment manufacturer, the people designing right. the cars, but then they'll also contract others to develop components that go into those cars, like a yeah. battery pack, like a traction motor. Okay. Uh, go ahead, Arusha. Have they given more insight on when some of these might become more commercially available and, uh, you, you know, a little bit more mainstream? Their predictions that they said straight from the IPO, they've stuck with. Uh, they okay. think that they're going to be able to sell 100 kilowatt hour battery packs at $7,000 per battery pack to 910,000 vehicles by the year 2028. Um, that's about the same price as Tesla's lithium ion battery pack today but with superior performance. Um, I've done some third-party, or I've done some research on this and leveraged some third-party research as well for Arusha. I think by 2030, they get to a million vehicles a year that they're supplying the battery packs for. And I'm actually going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I think they're going to sell them for about $10,000 for the improved specifications. Uh, if that's the case, you're talking about a company that could be doing $10 billion in revenue by the end of the decade, so eight years out. And if we give them even a, even a seven 
price to sales multiple, half of what Tesla said, because they don't have the interrelationship with the consumer, they're selling to the, uh, the automakers themselves. But even at a, a price to sales of seven times at $10 billion a year, you're talking about a $70 billion market cap company that's selling right around $5 billion today. Yeah. Uh, so the market has this inefficiently priced, either it's gonna fall apart, this doesn't work, and we just keep sticking with lithium ion, or if it does, with even with conservative assumptions, this could be a multi-bagger for investors. I just wouldn't recommend backing the truck up just yet. There's a long way to go and a lot of risks on this one. Yeah, well, I was just going to say that, uh, I mean, if it's 2028, 20, right, six years, I mean, that's, that's a long time to park a lot of money. Maybe you have a little bit of money in it if you really like the story and believe in the company that they can pull it off. But it's a long time to, to park money in it and hope that they hope things work out. And that's a long time for another competitor to come in and potentially come up with something else that could completely uh, reduce uh, the impact of uh, lithium metal. Yeah, they've got a, a three-part partnership for most of the uh, the OEM, the audio makers that they're working with. So call it A, B, and C. Uh, they just uh, they just announced that they've made progress on the 24-layer cells, which qualifies for the specifications that a lot of their partners have put in place for those sample A cells. In other words, if there's a three-part program, they've got something that might be showing promise in part A, uh, which is great. They're making actual progress out there. It's not just a you know pie-in-the-sky pipe dream idea. Mm -hmm. You know, I was actually going to ask you that because um, you know just kind of hearing you talk about this, and you know, you look at the numbers, and when you immediately see NA everywhere, it just reminds me of those um, you know kind of the biotechs, right? Uh, you know, where they don't right. have. They're, they're trying to build something, you know, they, they've got an idea, they're trying to build it, they're, you know, they have to go through the clinical trials and all of that process before anything actually goes to the market. And then you'll see, okay, does, does it work? And so are there kind of, you know, again, with biotechs, you maybe have these clinical trials, these approvals, these, you know, milestones that they hit. Um, is there anything kind of similar for QuantumScape where they're, they're letting you know, okay, we hit this milestone here, or and this is our next one. And if we can do this, then we're on track. Or, oh man, if we miss this one, then uh, maybe this isn't working like like we thought. Yeah, binary events, Justin. Right? It's a yeah, zero right. or one. Right? It's a heads or tails. You know, it's yeah. it, just like the biotech stuff you said. Is it going to get through clinical trials or is it not? You know, it, there is a there is a zero percent chance of uh, the Houston Texans winning more than four games this season. I mean, things like that. You know, it's either a yes or a no. Uh, that are the outcomes. I think of QuantumScape as like a like a mini biotech that has six different paths, right? If it's got six partnerships and one of them doesn't work out, it's still got five partnerships. But then you kind of got to discount back the potential cash flows from that one that didn't work out are no longer on the table. Uh, somebody says, no, this isn't working for us. We're abandoning it. You, you, you're going to see a lot of volatility uh, around the stock, just like you see with volatility in clinical trials for a biotech company. Mm -hmm. So, uh that, that kind of covers QuantumScape to a large degree. And again, the potential there, let's kind of shift a little bit more into the semiconductors away from the original equipment uh, to semiconductors. And you know, now granted semiconductors have been hit pretty hard, but you've got a couple semiconductors that it's, it's almost like what correction? They're, they're almost at new highs. So uh, we can start with WolfSpeed. Now folks might be familiar with the old company Cree, from, from back in the day, uh, that was one of the stocks in the 90s that was, uh, you know, a, a big a big winner. So what what has Cree turned itself into with WolfSpeed? Uh, completely repivoted the company, right? Cree used to sell LED light bulbs to consumers. 
And now Wolfspeed is, is all in pure play on silicon carbide materials. Uh, example that might be kind of people would, would, would find this similar to would be Intel. Uh, Intel can make wafers, sil silicon-based wafers uh, for its own microprocessors or with its foundry group, it can contract to make your, your chips as well, right? The whole semiconductor industry has been based upon silicon as the wafer material uh, for semiconducting properties. And just over the years, we kind of said, yeah, this is great. It makes sense that, you know, the manufacturing processes and the fabs that Intel and Samsung and everyone else has built out there. Yeah, they're really good. They incrementally get better every year. But what if we used silicon carbide instead of silicon as the wafer material? Uh, this is a wider band gap material, which means that at higher temperatures, it can still allow the flow of electrons more efficiently and with less resistance than silicon can by itself. Uh, why does that matter? Well, for an electric vehicle, if you punch it and you want to have all of a sudden a lot of energy being delivered to the vehicle without a whole lot of uh, inefficient losses, that really matters. And so Wolfspeed is saying, hey, all those forecasts we just talked about with QuantumScape, all the electric vehicle companies that are wanting to push their own models out there and have the most efficient cars that are out there, guys, you've got to have this base. The chips in your cars have to be based upon silicon carbide. And we know you're going to get there and we know you're going to figure this out. And we're going to start building the, the giant facilities to make that a reality. And so just earlier this year, they put a, a billion dollars into Mohawk Valley in New York, American manufacturing of silicon carbide. That's going to be fully operational in the next two years. And they also just announced that they're also going to be putting another billion dollars into the expansion of their North Carolina facility. Justin, this makes them the largest independent manufacturer of silicon carbide, kind of a pure play that's all in on a market that hasn't fully recognized its potential just yet. Mm -hmm. but, but is the demand just dramatically increasing? So, I mean, it, the solution sounds amazing, uh, but has it convinced kind of the, the, the big players to maybe slowly start switching from silicon to silicon carbide? I've got an example for it, Arusha, of one that's actually out there that we can actually see driving around today. It's not just, you know, a in the future kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, Lucid is an electric vehicle maker, right? This is a okay. premium segment of the market, right? These things yeah. sell for like $90,000 a pop. Yeah. Uh, but the specs on them are, are pretty awesome, right? Like they can say that some of their vehicles can have up to 1,000 horsepower, go zero to 60 in less than two seconds, Arusha, <laughs> and, and have up to uh, excuse uh, 200 miles per hour. Right, this wow. is a sexy EV. This is not just the golf car that you're driving around your neighborhood. Uh, but that's made possible because Lucid is partnering with Wolfspeed today wow. to produce a lot of the power components that go into the traction inverters that allow for that efficient distribution of the power supplied by the battery that when you punch it, it goes really, really quickly and really, really efficiently. Uh, Tesla figured this out years ago. <clears throat> they did not work with Wolfspeed. They worked with a company called ST Microelectronics. Uh, but again, designing traction inverters, those are now going into the Model 3. The rest of the industry is trying to catch up with what Elon figured out a long time ago. Yeah. So now, uh, what is it about Wolf Speed that, um, I, again, you know, it, it's kind of still early on. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. This is kind of still early on with adoption. So uh, how much adoption has been done already and how much is it looking towards in the future, especially if you know QuantumScape kind of gets gets its stuff together, and how how much of that is a dependency, and how much of it is, hey, look, there's already the the market for it with companies like Lucid and so on. The cost curve is is really interesting for semiconductor manufacturing, right? If you look at the companies that did this really well, like Taiwan Semiconductor, 
they'd start putting R&D into designing a new way to make chips before anybody could even use those chips yet. Mm -hmm. um, and then by the time that they had it ready to commercialize and start taking orders, it was the apples you know, of the world that would say, hey, I want those super, super small, super awesome chips to put into our newest iPhone. And then all of a sudden you've got your iPhone that's running 300 apps at the same time um, that's not draining all of your battery immediately because it's, it's working efficiently. It's the same thing, like, like what we're seeing right now with, with a new way of, of producing semiconductors that might have a market in electric vehicles that's the first adopters. They can afford to pay those prices, right? If you're Lucid and you're charging $87,000 for your Lucid Air, yeah, you can, you can afford you know, a little bit of money for your traction inverter components out there. But the idea would be if you've got some early adopters, the electric vehicle industry, what, what else could, yeah. could, could, this, could this apply to? Air conditioning. Air conditioning is spinning motors, you know, and needs deliver delivery of power efficiently. How much money do we spend every month on our on our air conditioning bill? You guys don't worry about this. You live in California, but in Houston, we really worry about this in the summer. <laughs> right? Hey, we've had a heat wave. That, yeah. that's, 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 it, it was no a long two weeks. Yeah, yeah. It's I live I live by the beach, and it still hit ninety. You know, and that was like, oh, and and we got humidity, which we just didn't know what to do with. It yeah, like, but HVAC, you know, HVAC is another industry that you know could this possibly if we get the prices down low enough, could you do something like this with a completely new way of designing uh, the chips that go into the smart homes? Things like that could be interesting. We're definitely not there yet, though. Market's still pricing this at 19 times sales. You know, it's still greater than, I believe, what are we at? A 15, $17 billion market cap maybe for Wolf Speed now? Yeah, 15 yeah. right now. 50, yep. Okay, so, so not cheap. It, it's getting a premium, but it's also a pure play. It's, it's, put, it's punching the accelerator and putting a lot of money to work right now. Yeah, and I'll just very quickly say, on the, going off the chart, I mean, it's very strong relative strength rating um the eps it's not doesn't really have the earnings over the the last uh few years here but uh, i mean it comes up on our screens i mean th this is uh this is one that uh is looking uh more attractive but and uh some institutional sponsorship too harbor mid-cap growth looks like they started purchasing a little bit of shares uh in the stock so uh yeah so versus like a quantum scape where that might need some time to base and build and uh, do an, a number of things for it to start uh, surfacing up on our screens. Wolf Speed is one of those that comes through a number of screens uh, when you run it through MarketSmith. Yeah, and I think it's that relative strength uh, line and the relative strength that is really kind of the, the key component there. Uh, again, especially in the semiconductor space where you still have a lot of those stocks below their 200-day moving average lines, struggling there. And this one is 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 clearly above it's 200 day, it's 50 day line and so on. And again, uh, for those of you that are not watching the video, you can get the video at investors.com slash podcast where Arusha is showing showing these charts. Um, let's go ahead and move on. You, you got another semiconductor one that uh, some people may have heard of. Uh, that's on semiconductor, ticker symbol ON on this one. Uh, another one where the relative strength is very powerful uh, at new highs. Uh, again, it's it's almost like what correction? This has just been tightening up the last few weeks. Um, what's and this one has earnings. This one has you know some strong earnings growth. Um, and you know what what is the difference here between Wolf and On? Uh, what what are they doing and why is On kind of a little bit further ahead in terms of its earnings? Yeah, this, this is a company that, that's been around for a while, right? Like we started it with with QuantumScape, which is zero revenue. You know, still super early, super super high risk. 
You talk about Wolf Speed, which has got some revenue, actually. It's got some earnings out there. Now we've got On Semiconductor. This was spun out of Motorola back in 1999. So it's kind of this diversified chip company. It sells a lot of boring stuff, diodes, you know, things to companies like Samsung and Dell. And, you know, it's, it's got this established business. But its CEO uh, basically said, you know, I, I think we should be serving the high end of this market. I'm kind of tired of selling you these really low margin things that we've been doing for, for two decades now. Uh, why don't we go out and, and really have a profitable business? And he kind of turned things around and said, hey, electric vehicles is a great way to do this. And, uh, you know, even silicon carbide, I, I think we should kind of we should be doing this instead. And so he's completely turned the business around. He's been divesting uh, a lot of the gallium nitride assets that the company had before. It's been uh, uh, divesting a lot of the diodes and some of the transistors that they had before. And yet it's been acquiring uh, some of its other companies like it did with GT Advanced Technologies, not to be confused with ST Microelectronics that we mentioned earlier. But it's, 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 it's kind of realizing that silicon um, carbide is a much more profitable industry to get into. And so I think that OnSimi, you know, probably is the lowest risk play of the three that we've discussed here. It's already established. Um, you've got a, a leader who respects the profit margins and that's directing his decisions of where he wants to go. And the chart that you show, I mean, like this is the market embracing that, right? The market's saying, wow, you're yep. boosting your operating margins. You're boosting your gross profits. We want to invest in a more profitable company rather than a less profitable company. There's less competition here, so you don't have everybody chewing away at your pricing every day. Uh, they've certainly rewarded the company. It's had a great year for investors. Yeah, I would uh, I would agree with that. Well, first, I should say that we actually own this stock for in, in some firm accounts. Uh, it, it's right up there on kind of the when you look at the screening from an O'Neill perspective, uh, EPS rating of a 92, so outperforming 92% of the stocks in in our database, an RS rating of 93. And yeah, Simon, you mentioned those earnings and sales. I mean, these are triple digit earnings yeah. uh, right there. So these are just monster, monster earnings. And that's now, not off of a like a penny per share. You yes, know, I mean, sometimes yes. you'll see that. This is that's true. We're we're up at a buck. You know, <laughs> a buck yeah. earnings per share now. Uh, and and it is setting up. It broke out of a consolidation. It's it's hanging in there, kind of tightening up right around uh, finding support off the ten week moving average and then institutions. There are three institutions in this one out of the in the IBD mutual fund index, uh, uh, and and so you have uh, you have uh, Fidelity contra funds, right? So they're build they've been building a position on this over the last few quarters. So there are a number of things that we look for. So we're looking for always these kind of great growth ideas that Simon's really good at finding, but then we're also kind of looking for a few other things. And in many ways, it's just to kind of try to slowly improve the probabilities for success when the market's ready to, to go too. So I think we all agree on this one, that this one does, like like you said, Simon, this one out of the three has the most things going that, that growth investors look for. Yeah, mm -hmm. and perfect compliments to what you just said as well, Arusha, was, um, you know, revenue is growing at 20% a year, yes. but gross yep. profits are growing at 43% a year. You can see yeah. the focus on where the money's at, right? Uh, gross margin just within the past year alone Grew from 32% to uh, to 38%. So you see the strategy. You know you don't want to fight it fight it out at the, at the bottom of the market. You know go go where the money is, and that's certainly what Onsimi has done. Yeah, and well, and actually let's just talk about gross margins a little bit. Just I mean that's showing a company has that pricing power, right? Mm -hmm. Where they're able to, especially when the markets get a little bit harder, and 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 customers are going to be looking for different options. 
know, they're going to go towards quality, right? I mean, talk a little bit about why gross margins are just so important when analyzing companies. Yeah, and I apologize. I, I should have mentioned, too, that the numbers that I said were for their industrial and automotive segment, which is one of the, the gold star of the company right now. It's the one that they, they know they want to get into. Uh, you know, this is, uh, to your point, this is a company that, that there's nothing wrong with selling to uh, the Samsungs and the Dells of the world, but they want to be selling to the Delphi's and the Daimler Chrysler's and the, um, you know, these automotive component uh, manufacturers that are selling them to the, to the automakers themselves. Um, if you can do that, and it's a new industry, like we said, you get higher price points. Um, if, you're, if you're creating quantum computing chips, you're going to sell those for higher price points. And if you're selling CPUs that are uh, 30 years old, it just, mm -hmm. you, you want to go where the pricing can support it. And if Wolf Speed, we can say is forward integrating their business where they were selling the silicon carbide wafers and they want to be fabricating the components that go then to the automakers. Um, perhaps it's fair to say that OnSimi is going the backwards integration route where they've been selling the components first and now they want to make them out of silicon carbide instead and bring that in-house so they can get their own efficiencies higher. Uh, that's what you've seen at the acquisition. That's what you see. They're kind of trying to be like Wolfspeed at the same time that Wolfspeed is trying to be like on Simi. That's and, uh, there's, there's probably probably enough enough of a market for both of them to win at doing that strategy. Mm -hmm. Well, Simon, I, I think you've given our audience a lot of things to think about and research. And uh, I mean, probably starting with just getting a periodic table and putting it down as a placemat uh, at, at the table and learning learning all these <laughs> different components. So uh, great, great having you on the show again. And uh, just as a reminder, again, uh, you can find Simon at 7innovator on Twitter. And also um, go ahead and give that, get, give that spiel about your website as well and the uh, code that people can use. Sure, yeah, 7investing.com uh, or 7investing.com slash subscribe. If you would like to sign up and see all of our uh, our monthly stock recommendations, uh, mine with this last month was in the veterinarian industry of all places, Justin. Mm, okay. <laughs> outside of uh, the, the typical companies I look at, but seveninvesting.com slash subscribe and IBD if you'd like to use the promo code for 25% off. And, and yeah, that's the and, number seven, right? Yeah, correct. Seven investing. Yeah. 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 And, and, and Simon, so you do a lot of, on your site, you do a lot of these uh, videos too, right? You do kind of in-depth Kind of like so for those who really like what you've been saying in the podcast and the way you analyze it, like me, I, I really enjoy and I've learned a ton just just in these last 45 minutes. I mean, you're you're you and your team are doing these kind of deep dives on companies, uh, you know, a few of them each month, right? We do, Arusha. We, we fight it out. We hash it out. But, but we're all remote, so nobody can really, you know, throw any, any haymakers at anyone else. Uh, no, we, we do. I, I'm glad you brought it up because, you know, so much of investing is to consider the risk profile, too. This is something I've loved chatting with you about for several years now. You know, what could go wrong with any one of these right. investments? Uh, QuantumScape is a very risky investment, and you want to make sure that you're uh, everybody's aware of that right up front when you're when you're looking at, at stuff like that. And we always say, you know, what's, what could go badly for any of these businesses and what could go right? And then at the end of the day, what's your very favorite idea every single month? So that's where we end up uh, with 7investing. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I almost was thinking, you know, back to our biotech analogy. It's almost like the, um, you know, you've got the, the single... Uh, the single drug company that's just kind of starting out versus, you know, like an on semiconductor, it already has a lot of things established. It's got its pipeline. It's just trying to get that new drug, uh, you know, and, you know, maybe it doesn't, if it doesn't work out, 
you know, it's not the end of the world. It still has all these other things to fall back on. So, um, yeah, a very, very interesting discussion, Simon. It's always great having you on. I'm sure we will have you on in the future again. So thanks, thanks for your time. I had a great time. Thanks as always for having me, Justin. Okay. And on the show next week, we're going to have Tom O'Halloran on. Uh, he is the por portfolio manager and partner at Lord Abbott, uh, one of the mutual funds that we really respect. Uh, you, you can see them on the IBD mutual fund index. So it's going to be great to kind of get uh, his insights into what he's seeing going on in the market and some reasons why he might be getting a little bit more bullish. Thank you so much for tuning in with us this time around. We'll see you next time. Take care. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and nothing should be construed as a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any securities. Make sure to consider consulting with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions.